and welcome to the Vital Signs of Democracy podcast. Is democracy threatened in America? Because we never thought in our lifetimes we would be asking that question. Yet, here we are, seemingly more polarized than any other time in our history. So our goal in this podcast isn't to tell you the news, but to help us understand how the stories we hear and believe are crafted for other reasons and how that impacts our belief in a democratic form of governance. We're gonna slow down and take a deep look at motivations, interpretations, and yes, the facts themselves. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum. I'm also the president and CEO of Bridge Alliance, which is a coalition of almost 600 organizations who are working to bring about a thriving, just, and healthy democratic republic. You can learn more about our work at bridgealliance.us. And I'm David Reardon, Director of Vital Signs of Democracy. Every two weeks, we publish a rating of the threat level to democracy in this country based on our unique narrative analysis of the news. And we pay particular attention to how both Make America Great narratives from the Biden Democrats and the MAGA Republicans are garnering support from their voters or not. You can find our latest rating at vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. So it's great to be here with you again, David. And I noticed that the latest vital signs threat meter went back up to a level six. And you had kind of anticipated this, uh, that it might rise again, because we had been at a kind of moderate level four. So what's causing this rise in concern? So before I answer that question, which is the right one, we always remind everyone that at vital signs, we're analyzing the level of uncertainty about our democracy as it is being reported in the news. And our theory of the case is the larger the uncertainty, the more voters may look for a more autocratic candidate to lessen their anxiety. What caused this recent increase to threat level six that you mentioned was not one individual factor but a concern that is being expressed in a number of ways that the 2024 election may be more dangerous for democracy in America than the 2020 election was. So I can share with you that I've been feeling some of this increasing anxiety just, you know, in general, in the general atmosphere. Can you like say a little bit more about that? So what we know up until this point, because this is almost changing every day, right? There are many X factors yet to play out in the run-up to the 2024 election that we just didn't have in 2020. I mean, once Biden became the Democratic nominee, the choice between him and Trump was clear. This time, both candidates, if they are chosen by their parties to be their standard bearers, have potential negatives. For example, will Biden's health allow him to make it through a second term? Or will Trump be convicted of a number of federal crimes of trying to overthrow the results of the 2020 election? So if it is Trump and Biden again, and we also see significant third-party efforts starting to play out, is it possible that no candidate will get a majority of the electoral votes? Then what? In uncertain moments like that, it is often the smallest unseen factor that can tip the outcome one way or another, and we end up with a surprise result like we did with the election of Trump in 2016. 
Now, in that one, as you remember, the head of the FBI did something previously unthinkable. He reopened the Bureau's case against Hillary three days before the election, which resulted in Trump winning by 85,000 votes in three battleground states. When you look at democracies around the world that begin to decline, it usually starts with voters being confused about which of the candidates are telling them the truth. In that field of uncertainty, an autocratic candidate can gain traction by promising to bring a kind of stability to the situation. And it's like we're seeing right now unfold in Israel. So the far right prime minister, Netanyahu, who's been around for a, a while, is attempting to lessen the Israeli court's power to challenge whatever he wants to do, particularly as it relates to occupying Palestine. Part of what you're pointing to, David, is why I am so excited that our first interview on the Vital Science podcast is with Julia Roig. I can't wait to hear why she thinks it's so important to come back home to the United States after working for more than 30 years in places, war-torn conflicts around the world. And now she's here to help us strengthen uh, and protect the democracy in the United States. Well, let's bring her into the conversation, shall we? I am so thrilled to have with us today, Julia Roig, who is the founder and chief network weaver from Horizons Project. And Julia has more than 30 years of experience working for democratic change and conflict transformation around the world. And she is best known for her ability to convene diverse coalitions and her facilitative leadership of global networks. She has a special passion for narratives and creative partnerships, which is part of why we wanted her to be our first guest. But she's an organizer at heart. And in her role as chief network weaver, she's committed to bridge building across sectors and disciplines and cultures. And so Julia, just welcome to the Vital Signs of Democracy podcast. Thank you so much. Like we were just saying, you know, it's fun that we're having this conversation on September 15th, which is the International Day of Democracy. One of the things I did want to ask you about is you have 30 years of experience working on peace building and democracy around the world. Is there like um, a story that stands out that, that you can connect to like what's happening in the United States today? Because you gave me these questions in advance, I got to take some time to think about this and it was it was kind of challenging but I did come up with one story that I would tell partially because I really do believe in the peace building framework and like explaining what a peace builder actually does in order to hopefully allow more Americans who are working on different kind of elements of social change to see themselves in that peace building word. Because, you know, as you know, I, you know, we have tried to bring the kind of narrative of peace and peace building to the U.S. context. And it's quite challenging to see ourselves in this country as either needing peace or peace building and what that actually means to us. So with that in mind, I guess what I would say is, you know, I think sometimes we might have this perception that, you know, somebody comes from the outside to go to a country in conflict and like mediate between warring factions. And that's what peace building looks like. And, and from my experience, and I think, you know, the, those who are in the field of professional peace building globally, you know, the work is 
quite varied. So I could have picked a lot of different stories, meaning, you know, we've worked on issues of like women's rights, for example, or we've worked on like anti-corruption activities in countries. We've spent a lot of time making sure that like businesses are in right relationship with the communities where they're working like big footprint, you know, mining companies, for example. And so, you know, whether it's the rule of law or whether it's thinking about, you know, just citizen engagement, there's, there's so many things that fall under the moniker of peace building that that's why it was my professional home for as long as it was. What is your sense of urgency around American democracy or around our democratic republic right now? If you had to rate it on a scale of one to 10, what's one being full democracy, 10 being something else, where Mm -hmm. would you rate it? I could give you a number, but I'm going to give you a more cagey answer if that's okay. Because I mean, I, I have had both the privilege and the education of being in countries that are completely failed states. I've, I've traveled a lot to places where governance has absolutely fallen apart. And so it is true that, you know, in the whole scheme of how bad it could be, we are fairly lucky with the level of institutional um, resilience that we have in this country. I really do believe that. So because I've traveled to as many places as I have that are completely failed states, I do really recognize that we have a lot of institutional resiliency in the U.S., and that there is a privilege of the just the functioning of our systems in the United States. Part of the reason that I decided to stop working internationally, though, and to create the Horizons Project as a platform for focusing on the conflict dynamics and democratic decline in the U.S. is exactly because I could see how the decline was picking up speed in the U.S. I live in a place in my heart and soul where I actually expect that things are going to get worse before they get better. And so I read things pretty bad right now. So a four out of 10, even though the majority of folks are are living a pretty stable life and have the ability to not necessarily pay attention. And then what we've seen in other countries, of course, is that's exactly how democracies die now. It's, and I've said this recently, death by a thousand cuts, whatever the metaphor is, boiling frogs, the tide is sweeping us out to sea and, and we're swimming hysterically, some of us. But the most of us are not necessarily really paying attention. And so I think that they'll get worse before they get better. But that's also part of the part of a society needing to transform itself. You've mentioned this already, you know, about peace building kind of not being a good brand, if you will, for the United States. And and David and I had talked uh, in preparation for this interview about how kind of peace building kind of may have gotten caught up in the 60s and 70s with the anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. Hence the, you know, kind of definition, the unique American definition around peace building being something that's anti-American. 
we have peace is assumed. And then if you're a peace builder, you're pinko communist kind of feeling. And so I just wondered about like, you're participating in documentary to rebrand peace in the United States. What are some of like the themes that you're picking up on to help reframe peace in the United States? Part of the reasons that this rebranding is so necessary in my mind is actually linked to what we just said, because if we acknowledge the level of conflict and dysfunction and fragility that we have of our systems and our democracy and our social cohesion, then the response is to act accordingly of needing a framework that brings in all of the threads of needing to address the level of harm. And in my experience, those types of peace building frameworks are what's needed when societies have collapsed. And the whole international community has a way of thinking about bringing a framework to help reconstitute a country. And what we're finding now in the peacebuilding community is you're not either a completely failed state in, in total civil war or completely peaceful and, and fine. Everybody's in this like fluctuating state of different levels of dysfunction and violence. When I talk to people, for example, they'll say, well, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you think that we're going to devolve into violence someday? Like somehow there's going to be this civil war of like, you know, the blue hats and the gray hats that are going to come. And, I, and, you know, of course, there's a lot of scholarship that says, well, that's not what modern day civil wars are going to look like. It's going to look like the violence that's happening right now, every day in this country. And so part of rebranding peace for me is to then be able to say, we need a kind of framework to take a step back from the brink. So one is acknowledging the level of harm, but two is to rebrand peace, that it's something that's very courageous and it's not weak. It's definitely not hippy dippy. It's some of the hardest work we can do together because it requires us to have the hardest conversations with folks that we might not want to have those conversations with. It's a rebuilding of our relationships together. And so rebranding peace is one, acknowledging that peace building is needed. Two, that it's loud, courageous, active, but also possible. And so, you know, when I've worked with the creative industry colleagues about rebranding peace, they laugh and say, well, we might as well like rebrand love, you know, because like peace and love and like, it's like, it's one of those words is like meaningless. And so then we also then have to give it teeth. We have to like give it substance. We have to say, well, what do you do as a peace builder? So then there's like the actions that are needed. And uh, that's also standing up against a negative piece. So this is kind of a academic term of a positive piece and a negative piece, but actually Martin Luther King Jr. talked about this a lot. So peace without justice is a negative piece. That's another reason why peace has a, a bad brand because somehow you're capitulating, you're giving in in the name of civility and unity to be peaceful. And in fact, the Soviet Union used to say that 
to its satellite countries. We all just need to be peaceful, make sure to be a peaceful citizen so that we can all get along under Soviet rule. And so we don't want a negative peace. We want a positive peace, which is how we're all going to get through these hard conversations together with the kind of tools that we need, the talents we all have to bring, but within this broader framework of really understanding the complexity of what we're working towards. I love when you talk about peace as being something that's active and courageous because the other, I think the other thing with peace building is it's also not flashy or sexy or commercial in any way. It doesn't look like, woohoo, we won the race kind of, you know, commercialism that we see in a lot of political theater today. Yeah. It's actually the behind the scenes work that happens, you know, by the stage hands and the, script writers and the the people who who help that production that theater exist Mm -hmm. but without whom it would not be possible to have you know peace building theory also talks about kind of the, the vertical line of change from kind of grassroots to elite leadership and the horizontal um you know way that we need you know building bridges quote unquote across different kind of same level or geographic levels. And so, you know, there's a, sometimes there's a romanticism about the quiet work behind the scenes. I don't mean to push back so much. You're right. It, it's both and, which is really hard. So I one thing is like, are we waiting for Nelson Mandela? Are we waiting for the Gandhis of the world to like come and save us? Because sometimes when we think about a peace builder, we think, you know, that's who we think about. Or is it just everyday people that are going to make a difference and they're going to leave their front yard, you know, every day and act in a certain way, be a certain way, you know, resolve conflicts in a certain way. It's both and it's loud work. It's quiet work. It takes leadership and it takes all of us. What I find in kind of our social change ecosystem is that, you know, folks have a theory of change of, no, no, we need we need to make sure to invest in local level efforts. That's where the rubber is really going to hit the road. And I say, absolutely, that is absolutely needed. No, no, what we really need is a new architecture in the United Nations where we all come together and we decide on how we're, well, that too, actually, we need to invest in leadership. We need, you know, the political system and leaders to change and we need to be advocating and supporting those political leaders. So you know, I think it's this both and thinking that an infrastructure around peace requires of us. I want to follow up a little bit on your urgency at a four, right? That that comment, because I'm always interested in what we're all feeling these days. And certainly Debbie Lynn and I are feeling a sense of urgency is why we started doing this as opposed to or building on top of all the work that we were doing. But as you also said, and as any of us that work in this, uh, when you came back to the United States, I mean, you're confronted with a very complex ecosystem. I mean, there's just stuff all over the place in terms of, well, how do we lean this country toward a stronger democracy rather than lean it the other way toward something darker, right? So in terms of your work, and I, I think I know a little bit of the answer, but this is why I wanted to really ask it for our audience. In terms of the work you're doing, we can't be everywhere at once. Right. We can't do everything. So all of us choose a place within the ecosystem to try to have some influence. And we have some story that we tell ourselves 
that's the way I think I can make a difference, whether I do or not, you know, but it's there. So could you talk a little bit about within the, the whole ecosystem of possibilities in your work? Why did you, when you came back, why did you choose to work where you are at the moment? Yeah. So I'm so grateful for some just key people in my world that allowed us to establish the Horizons Project. Because for those of us who have been running around the world, working internationally, part of what you do is kind of a conflict assessment. And then you really do have this kind of bird's eye view (laughs) to then be able to say like, okay, well, where are the levers of change that I would want to pull on to make any kind of difference within this kind of system? And so I was very much on the civil society side of that equation. I was working with nonprofit organizations and civic groups to then be in right relationship and connected with government institutions or the private sector or international organizations. And, you know, in the more than 50 countries that I've worked in, I've always thought to myself, it was never that we needed more money in those countries, better projects, better metrics for the outcomes of the projects. We needed to connect the initiatives and the people who were all doing good work in very siloed ways. So who was doing the connecting work to help a system of folks working on democracy or human rights or peace building to see themselves as a part of one system? You know, we talk a lot about connective tissue and collaboration and bringing coalitions together. It is so hard to do that in practice. It is hard to break down silos, both as a skill, because you end up having to mediate, you know, different viewpoints, different incentives. So the other thing that I found in my work is that people were always calling for better collaboration, better networking, better kind of silo busting, and then not investing in like the actual work that it took to do that and the skills and the time and the the role there it's a role that has to be played with with a commitment to a way of showing up to do that work so then okay now i'm created the horizons project and i said i yeah audacious because you just described like the federal system and all of the states and all of the actors and the networks of networks and the people who are already in the space trying to be connective tissue. Horizons arrived on the scene and said, yep, that we this is the way that we know work is needed. This role of connecting the networks of networks and then doing the work of sitting with the tensions to say, it's okay that we don't all see this problem in the same way. It's all right that we don't all agree on what needs to be done and the time horizon that it needs to be done. But at least we need to be, we need to know about each other. We need to know the trade-offs we're making. We need to know what tools have already been developed by somebody else. So I am a network weaver. I got to make up that title because we started Horizons. But then, you know, I truly believe in what we're doing as a needed function. And the difference I think with the Horizons Project is how large of a circle we draw around the ecosystem that we're trying to impact, which is 
all of the folks who are working on democracy from a very technocratic perspective of like, we need just more ranked choice voting or, you know, we need to deal with gerrymandering. All of the folks who are dealing with the depolarization framework of we need red hats and blue hats to find more empathy for each other again, to build social cohesion and all of the social justice movement folks that are trying to raise the heat to, you know, activate people to call for change and disrupt complacency. None of these positions are wrong. None of them are wrong. We're all, they all are right with regards to the change that they need to see. But wow, couldn't we be more powerful if a couple of key leaders came together to understand both each other's perspective frameworks and to really reflect on the way that they're using their lane? Because people talk about that a lot. I just may need to stay in my lane. This is my lane. So then we try and at least let other people know about these other lanes and start to build the the bridges between them. So just a quick follow-up, and I know this is a big question. So that's it. So there's a, there's a very nice description of where you spend your time and why, right? How do you feel that work that you're doing in terms of connecting all the different lanes? What's the current state of that? How are you feeling it? in terms of being effective or moving toward whatever goals we all have? I feel good, actually. Uh, But can I tell you why I feel good? Mm -hmm. Because someone that I really admire once told me that his organization has a hundred year work plan. This organization thinks in terms of generational change Mm -hmm. and that has to inform what you do tomorrow, what you do next year, you know, how you spend your days, what you spend your time on. And yet it takes the pressure off a little bit of like, how am I having impact right now? Is it happening right now? Because I had another, I had another mentor tell me, and and this was quite freeing and, and to say, pay attention to where your energies are. And do more of that. And then pay attention to where other people's energies are. So then my barometer for like, okay, am I making an impact is like, well, first of all, this is like a hundred year project. So I'm going to take the pressure off my shoulders to be like, no, no, we're the, the ecosystem has been cohered and we are now, you know, marching forward. No, but I do have a sense of like, increased energies in the places where people are finding themselves and wanting to come together in new ways. I feel that. I'm not going to put that in some kind of evaluation report, but I feel it. I will go where that energy is. And I'm really lucky to have a partner who co-leads the Horizons Project with me, Maria Stefan, and a lovely team. I mean, there's five of us at Horizons but we're we're very similar and and we pivot quickly it's like we thought we had energy over here nope that that or you just you're kind of sensing with other people like they we might have thought we were going to be doing a lot of this over here but people don't seem to be super energized about that anymore so let's go over here and do this sorry that's not a super specific answer but that's literally kind of how i feel about it I I think what you're pointing to there, Julia, is this ability in these times of uncertainty, which we've kind of all agreed, like 
things are uncertain right now and they feel wonky and you have developed a team that can be agile to a, to move where the energy is right now and resilient to address whatever's coming up in the moment mm-hmm. with the, in the context of a hundred year plan. Or a hundred year vision. I have not necessarily sat down to come up with my work plan because I honestly don't even really believe in strategic plans anymore. Like, I you don't know, either. We've come up with like our three-year strategy for blah, blah, blah. I'm like, if we like set course for like the next four months and then we come together again and like kind of sense make and like, that's the emergent strategy that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, So, you know, the hundred year plan is probably more of a metaphor of just saying like, I will hand this baton off to the next generation and they will take it up and they will keep doing the work. But I do have a sense that we're in this moment of intense flux. And so the kind of leadership that is required of us right now is very different than having the plan and the objectives and the strategies and just implementing it with great certainty. Well, I'm smiling here a little bit because there is something about in this time of uncertainty that people find comfort in a plan because they think that if we do the right plan and we execute the plan, then that's going to provide us the certainty that's missing in the broader culture. And so I just smiling in recognition of that at the moment. So Julia, according to our narrative analysis at Vital Signs, it seems that the MAGA Republicans have stopped trying to attract a majority of voters, but instead are attempting to put their authoritarian playbook into operation in the run-up to the 2024 election. I mean, they seem to want to further divide the electorate and suppress voters of color in key battleground states. So I'm a boomer and I came of age in the late 60s, and certainly America was undergoing huge chaotic changes in that period. But with all that chaos, I don't ever remember being worried that our democracy was being threatened as it seems to be now. In your view, are the current political dangers to our democracy unprecedented, or have we been through this before and got through it just fine? I guess where we land on the question that you just asked at the Horizons Project is that the laboratories of autocracy right now are at the state level. Right. And so it's not necessarily that it's like a big hodgepodge of like every we're kind of on the scale between democracy and autocracy. We pretty much have autocratic rule in many states in this country right now. And the the authoritarian playbook is absolutely being shared by state leaders and across borders from other countries because the playbook, like you just described, is pretty well-defined. So you get elected through democratic means. And then once you are elected, you start eroding the institutions that will either hold you accountable or allow for opposition to ever be able to contest your power. You'll start making sure that there is somebody to other and be fearful of. So you keep everybody super divided and fearful because then you're the strong leader that can um, save them. You start making sure that you can control the, the narrative around who's in and who's out 
And you do that by reminding people of a, a former mythological past that you should want to get back. A lot of that is about traditional family values all over the world. The abortion debate is a difficult one because there is a policy conversation to be had around abortion. I absolutely recognize that. And yet it is the first thing that authoritarians go for is gender justice because they can then go back to a mythological past of when men were men and women were women. We didn't have pronouns that we're all confused about, which is why we're seeing the uptick in in the questioning of gay rights and reproductive freedoms. It's a tactic, actually, to make us divided. We see that when women's reproductive rights are attacked, democratic decline happens right after that. And then, you know, loyalty above any kind of substantive ability to govern and, you know, going after the media, all of those that would hold you accountable. You promote political violence, you sidle up with organizations, kind of paramilitary organizations that you can tacitly approve of what they're doing. This is happening in states all over the country. And unfortunately, there happens to be a faction of authoritarians that have taken hold of the Republican Party right now. And yet we clearly know that this is not a red-blue struggle. That doesn't mean all Republicans are authoritarians. They're definitely not. In fact, what we always say about authoritarianism and its lineage in the United States, it used to have a stronghold in the Democratic Party. So during Jim Crow, one party rule, it was absolutely the Democrats that wanted to make sure that Blacks didn't have any kind of franchisement in the vote. So, you know, it's already here is kind of what I want to say. And so sometimes we game out, well, what would happen if that faction took over our national government, that is actually a real threat. But the solidarity that we have across state lines right now is, I think, a a real question for us of what it looks like to be in relationship with those that are fighting a fight for democracy when, you know, there's there's laws against protesters right now in Florida. You, You can't protest you know, that's exactly the kinds of things that you see in the most autocratic regimes around the world that we do see in our country. And it's why we feel it's so important to be reaching out across lines of difference, ideological difference, religious, racial, gender, geographical, to find each other on a different axis that isn't a progressive conservative axis, it's a pro-democracy, anti-democracy axis to be very specific about what is the authoritarian playbook, how does it operate, and how do we organize to essentially take away the incentive structure that exists right now for this anti-democratic behavior. One question we hear from our audience is about the time frame in which they need to stand up and take action so that our democracy will be protected. Now, we're less than 15 months away from the 2024 election in the short term. If a MAGA candidate gets elected and does some of the things that Trump is threatening or spelled out in the Heritage Foundation 
Project 2025 manifesto that just came out, all our concerns about women's right to choose or, for example, climate change could mean nothing if we don't have a democratic system moving forward. And if we have less than that, based on our narrative analysis, the MAGA Republicans have been very clear that their challenges to voting rights, women's rights, addressing climate change are just not priorities for them. So in the short-term time horizon, who is elected as president and in Congress seems like it's all that matters, right? But on the other hand, all of us who are working to strengthen our democracy recognize that what has been revealed since 2016 are that some of the safeguards of democracy we thought were in place as laws were actually just more procedures that were not binding on Trump as president or the Republicans in Congress. And we have seen what can happen when you have bad actors that attempt to blow through those time-honored practices. So as you go about your work, what is the time frame you are most concerned with? Is it just the near-term election in 2024? Or does it have more of a mid to long-term focus for strengthening our rule of law and reforming how we conduct elections so that our democratic system can stand up to the challenges of the 21st century? Something that's near and dear to my heart, but also to the work of Horizons, is the way that we go about making change right now in a way that is restorative of our societal relationships. And so, you know, what I just described is a resistance framework, right? We need to understand this authoritarian threat. We need to resist it. What we're very committed to, however, is the way that we resist the creative tactics of pressure are restorative of our societal relationships in the long term. And what that looks like, I don't know that we've figured that out yet, really. And so how do you not engage in toxic othering in order to stop toxic othering happening to you and your community? <laughs> how do you deal with the outrage that this is allowed to happen while also, you know, what we know about feeling outraged is you don't want to, you, you avoid the people who have outraged you and you know, in countries, again, that have come back from, from civil war, they realize that you can't wish the other side away. And so then, therefore, we cannot wish each other away right now. So the way that we are going to make change, the role that the type of bridge building activities are needed, I think there's an important aspect of the pro-democracy work that needs to happen is also feeling how it's going to be reparative, at least, of, of the long-term goals that we have. So, I, you know, we're committed to that very human uh, finding each other, even those who are on who are swept up in a story right now, because you talked about the narrative work. I mean, I spend a lot of time with a bunch of like super geeky narrative academics. And something that I've learned that is a little bit of an aha moment for me is that narratives are objects. They live and breathe on their own. They are closed systems of characters and plot lines and values, and they protect themselves. So when we think about 
a narrative and a story that people have been caught up into. There's a reason that there's such a draw to these certain stories that we have, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's, um, you know, rugged individualism, all of the things that are such strong pulls. If we try and counter a narrative that we want to change, it protects itself. And so then therefore, we need to be understanding of the people who are caught up in these stories. They're trapped. We're all trapped to a certain extent in our own worldviews and our own way of seeing the world. And so a restorative approach isn't necessarily to counter a narrative and continually tell people you're wrong or you're stupid or you're a racist or all of the things that we want to like stand up for our values. And so I think that there is a a new way of of working for the change that we want to see that has this kind of commitment to reparative societal relationships that we're also trying to kind of imbue in the embed in the ecosystem. And there's a lot of really wonderful people doing really wonderful things to try and bring that forward as well. And that's where we're going to have to leave it today. Julia, thank you so much for giving us your unique global piecework perspective as it relates to the status of democracy here in America. And for all of you out there in the audience who want to stay up on what's happening, remember, you can read all the latest news on democracy, and you can also hear our podcast at thefulcrum.us. And in addition, you can engage with the latest vital signs, threat rating, and news analysis at www.vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. We'll see you next time.